Number five, part one of The Heart of a Mystery by L.T. Mead and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Number five, A Gallop with the Storm, part one. It was a couple of months since the events took place which I mentioned in my last story. Evelyn Noel had recovered her spirits. As I looked at her bright face and slim, upright figure and listened once again to her merry laugh, I could scarcely believe she was the same girl who had stood in Sir James's study and told her terrible story. How very nearly her whole young life had been wrecked, but also how quickly she had recovered. I wondered if all girls were made alike, if a girl's nature was such that she could be reduced to the last gasp of despair one moment, and the next could sing about the house and be radiant and happy, its sunbeam and source of rejoicing once more. Sir James and Lady Noel begged of me never to mention the hated name of Reginald Monk in the girl's presence, and when his trial came on, which it did about that time, it was my duty to keep the newspapers as much as possible from her sight. I was collecting them one morning to take into Sir James's study when she came into the hall and stopped me with a smile. "'What are you doing, Mr. Finace?' she asked. "'Sir James wants the papers,' I said. "'He likes to look over them when he returns in the evening.' My father is not at home. He will not be home until five o'clock. That is true, I answered, but I may as well attend to his wishes now. I know why you do it, she said suddenly. Mr. Finace, I want to tell you something. I have read all the particulars with regard to Mr. Monk's trial already this morning. I am not fretting, she added. I am too thankful. But you may tell my father and mother that it is useless to keep things from my knowledge. I am no longer a child and cannot be treated as such tears filled her eyes. What should I have done but for you and Signor Pinheiro? she continued. I can never, never be sufficiently thankful that you, Mr. Finace, returned to England when you did, and also that you brought your Portuguese friend with you. She stretched out her hand and took mine as she spoke. The tears overflowed her lovely eyes. But the next moment she had flown across the hall and was singing in the garden. As I listened to her voice and remembered the look on her face a moment before, I could not help saying to myself, What a wonderful creature is woman! The next day was Sunday. I have good cause to remember that day. It was the 10th of June, 1899. For the past week, the weather had been sultry in the extreme. Day after day, the forecast prophesied storms and thunder, but the storms did not come and the sky, as far as rain was concerned, was like brass. The great heat made us all languid, and on this special afternoon Sir James and I were taking shelter under a wide-spreading cedar tree just at one end of the smoothly kept lawn. The tea table was standing near. Evelyn had poured out tea for us both, and had then gone into the house. "'I'm going to sit with Mother and read to her,' she said, turning her bright face towards Sir James. "'She has a headache.' She says there's so much electricity in the air. There is little doubt of that, was my comment, and I raised my eyes to look at the sky. It was blue, with the intense blue of perfect summer, but towards the horizon were suspicious-looking banks of clouds, piled one above the other. I wondered if the storm which had so long tarried would be on us that night. Sir James uttered lazy, disconnected sentences at intervals. The heat and considerable fatigue owing to a long week of hard work, had rendered him sleepy. Presently, he remarked, I wonder when Pinheiro will pay us another visit. Signor Pinheiro will not come until he brings us news, 
was my answer, and I could not help sighing as I spoke. "'What is the matter, Finesse?' said my employer, turning and gazing at me. "'It is impossible that you can feel apprehension now. You have lived, it is true, on the brink of a catastrophe. But even that dreadful woman, Mademoiselle de la Corte, must have played and lost her last trick when Reginald Monk failed in his mission. "'I do not believe so for a moment,' was my answer. "'You must remember, Sir James, that three times before the affair with your late secretary, Mademoiselle attempted my life. What she has done three times, she will do again. She is a terrible woman. Although I ought to be a happy man, with such genial employment, and so kind and considerate a friend as yourself, yet I live always on the brink of a precipice. At any moment, night or day, my life may be required of me, and my great foe spring to fresh existence. Sir James suddenly lost his sleepy manner. He started forward and spoke with emphasis. I do not mean to trouble you, he said. As a matter of fact, I left you here during the whole of last week, solely with the view of sparing you anxiety. But we are all very anxious at headquarters, and there is the feeling with more than one that the spy element has not been eliminated. This war, and I see no possible solution of the Transvaal question without it, must be unlike any previous one. Science, our friend in the construction of weapons, in tactics, in balloons, in wireless telegraphy, is equally our enemy when we approach the field of secret service. Our spies now have a competent knowledge of our preparations and movements by methods altogether unknown in the days of the Peninsular and Crimean Wars. A thousand eyes are watching us, and a thousand ears listen for our faintest footfalls. If these eyes and ears are invisible, that makes the danger all the greater. As Macbeth said, even the ground prates of our whereabouts. There is danger everywhere. You know it. Alas, I cried, I know it far too well. And the woman whom I so greatly fear is beyond doubt in the pay of the enemy. She is a fiend in human shape. So far as we are concerned, she is the great center. She is the spider that sits in the web to which all lines lead. There is only one man in Europe who can lay her by the heels. You have seen something of his methods in the case of your late secretary. I certainly have. Pinheiro is one in a thousand. If anyone will succeed in capturing Mademoiselle, he is the man, I said. I have absolute faith in him. As I spoke, the boughs of the cedar tree just behind rustled, and before Sir James could say another word, the gaunt figure of Pinheiro presented itself. He stepped silently into our little circle, bowed to Sir James, nodded to me, then took the nearest chair. You look like a ghost, Pinheiro, said Sir James. Did you come through the drive? I did not see you. I came by the shrubbery at the back of the house, Sir James, he answered. I eyed him narrowly as he accepted a cup of tea, which I poured out for him. He took it from my hand and leant back in his seat. You got my wire this morning, Sir James, he asked after a moment. I would not trouble you on Sunday, but for very special business, business that concerns us three personally, and Her Majesty's government in particular. As he spoke, he gave a curious, automatic glance behind him into the shadow of some laurel shrubs. I have come with news, indeed, he continued, and I will give it at once. Mademoiselle Delacorte is in England. What? I cried. It is a fact, Finesse, and I must confess that I am, on the whole, glad. I think it possible to weave a web round her now from which, with all her subtlety, she will not be able to escape. We do not know her whereabouts yet. Neither is it known why she has been so mad as to set foot on the shores of the land where her greatest enemies are. I need not say that since I heard the news I have been busy, 
and I have now come here to tell you that, owing to certain inquiries, I have come to a fairly definite conclusion. What is that? asked Sir James. In spite of all Mademoiselle's cleverness, she has been unable to keep from her employers, the Transvaal Secret Service agents, some of the recent performances of which you and I, Phineas, were the victims. And the affair with Monk has anything but redounded to her credit. Monk has given away one or two secrets which have further put Mademoiselle into hot water with her employers. Her object now in visiting England is to restore herself to their good favor, and she hopes to do this by a double coup. What do you mean? I asked. She wants to secure a considerable sum of money, and she has another and more dangerous object. Our lives, I said gloomily. Not only our lives, but the lives of others, was Pinero's terrible answer. Sir James watched him narrowly. Can you give us your reasons for coming to these conclusions? He asked after a pause. I can give you a very definite reason with regard to the money point. Here he drew his chair closer to ours and dropped his voice to a whisper. When you were in Lisbon with me, Phineas, did you ever happen to hear of the revered crucifix of the hermits of St. Augustine? Never, I answered, wondering what on earth crucifixes had to do with Mademoiselle. It is a queer story in itself, continued Pinheiro, and the fact of its in any way coming into our province is still queerer. First, let me give you the original history of the crucifix. The Church of Santo Andre in Lisbon belonged originally to the Hermits of St. Augustine. It was their own convent and was founded in 1271. The convent was injured by an earthquake and restored by the reformer of the order, Friar Luis de Montoya. The great earthquake of 1755 also injured it, but it was again rebuilt and is now one of the largest temples in Lisbon. The Brotherhood of St. Augustine possess much gold plate and jewels of great value, but their most treasured possession is, or rather was, a gold and silver crucifix, which was believed to have been given by the angels to Father Montoya. This crucifix was carried through the streets in procession every second Thursday in Lent, until, in a Jesuitical riot seven years ago, it was stolen by someone unknown and has never since been seen. An enormous reward, representing in English money about 16,000 pounds, was offered for its recovery by the Brotherhood of St. Augustine, who are very rich. But, great as the sum was, the crucifix was never restored. I was employed in the matter as detective. I did everything in my power, but failed utterly. My suspicion was that it had found its way to England. The real intrinsic value of the crucifix is small, not perhaps more than 40 pounds. Now here is the extraordinary point where our threads join. I have just heard that the Brotherhood have received a letter asking if the reward for the crucifix is still open. This letter emanates from Mademoiselle de la Corte, and it is evident from its contents that her visit to England is for the purpose of securing the crucifix and obtaining the money. No doubt she will try to get the treasure by fraudulent means. Where it is hidden I do not yet know, but it is through this link that I believe our next great move will be played. By it, I trust, we shall run her down, and by doing so, obtain information as to the gang, and possibly capture the papers relating to this great European conspiracy, and to her various plots in the Secret Service. The capture will, I know, be attended with difficulty and danger, and I want you, Phineas, to hold yourself in readiness to come to me at a moment's notice anywhere if I wire to you. I am fully aware, Sir James, he added, that this seems like taking a great liberty with you, but you will agree that in your own and the war office's interest, no pains must be spared to arrest this woman. I quite agree with you, 
replied the baronet with eagerness. Do exactly as you think best, Pinheiro. If you succeed, you will deserve great recognition from the country. Though I have never seen the woman, her presence seems to haunt me. I know nothing, of course, continued Pinheiro, but I feel that I ought to say you have every reason to fear her. I cannot impress upon you sufficiently the extreme necessity for caution. Blind malice and revenge are parts of her nature. She may strike another blow. I hate to think I am alarming you unnecessarily, but I frankly tell you that we three are in danger, in personal danger, and there may be others, officials in power, I mean, in a similar plight. There was no mistaking the Signor's serious tone. As he spoke, he took out his watch, looked at the hour, and sprang to his feet. I must be off again, he said. Time is everything just now. You will be ready, Finesse? Yes, was my answer. He disappeared again through the thick shrubbery as quickly and silently as he had come. We live in queer times, said Sir James. I wish we were all well out of the coming week, was my answer. It behoves us to be watchful, said Sir James. I can't say what a sense of relief I have in knowing that our affairs are in the hands of a man like Pinheiro. The rest of the day passed quietly. The heat seemed to increase. Towards evening the wind dropped utterly, but the banks of clouds had vanished from the horizon and had faded away into the mist. The sky was cloudless. Sir James retired into his study, and I walked up and down with Evelyn. So, Signor Pinheiro was here today, she said suddenly. Yes, I answered, but how did you know? I saw him talking to you and father on the lawn. Has he brought any fresh news? I hesitated. Has he? she continued, stamping her foot impatiently. What he told us was in confidence, was my answer. Yes, she said in a gentle tone, but that confidence may surely be shared by me. Tell me at once what he came about. If you don't, I shall go and ask father. Mademoiselle is in England, I said then in a gloomy voice. Pinheiro thinks we are in danger. It behoves us to be careful. Mr. Finesse, does that danger extend to my father? Alas, oh, you have answered me. You need not say anything further. Her face turned very white. There is no one I love as I do my father, she said then. Personally, I have no fear. Do you think that I could be afraid of a mere woman? No, I interrupted, but this woman is scarcely human. She's a fiend, not a woman. She would stop short at nothing. She uses as her weapon the most deadly scientific knowledge. It requires genius to follow her methods. Evelyn was silent for a minute or two. Then she said, You know, I suppose, that tomorrow night nearly half the officials of the war office are coming to dine here, and some half-dozen will spend the night at Worley Court? We are to have a dance after dinner, an impromptu affair, at which several of my friends are to be present. And what has that to say to Mademoiselle Delacourt? I interrupted. I don't know. I feel very depressed about it. I wish we might postpone our guests. Oh, surely you are over-nervous, I was about to say. But then I remembered the ball, the famous masked ball at Lisbon, and was silent. That night I slept badly, and towards morning was awakened by Toxin, Sir James's big mastiff. The dog was barking furiously. I lay and listened, wondering whether I should get up and make investigations. As the animal ceased, however, before long, I dropped off into a doze. In the morning I arose early. There were some lovely pinks in a bed at one side of the house. Now pinks are my favorite flowers, and I went to pick a buttonhole. This special bed lay just along the south side of the house. 
I was somewhat startled when I went up to the bed to see that part of it looked as if it had been freshly dug, and one or two plants, plucked by their roots, were lying in a half-withered condition on the ground. I concluded that the gardener had been hoeing up weeds in the bed, but how carelessly he had done his work. I thought no more of the matter, but went to breakfast. There I was greeted with the information that Toxin, the watchdog, had been found dead just outside his kennel. Poisoned, of course, said Sir James, in a very gloomy tone. I looked at him. Our eyes met. He conveyed a warning not to say anything to alarm Lady Knoll. I remembered how the dog had barked the night before and wished heartily that I had got up to look into the cause. Next moment, the letter that lay on my plate absorbed all my attention. It was from Pinheiro and ran as follows. My dear Finesse, come up by the 10.30. I wish to see you at Baker Street. Important. Yours, P. I passed the letter over to Sir James. He made no comment at the time, but after breakfast he drew me into his study. That sounds good, he said, and of course you must go. The affair of the dog is a little suspicious, Finesse. You might mention it to Pinheiro when you see him. I do heartily hope that that dreadful woman will soon be arrested. We shall have no peace of mind while she is at large. It is a pity that you will be absent tonight, on account of the dinner and the dance afterwards, but it cannot be helped. I felt very sorry myself at having to miss the big dinner, to which I had been looking forward for some time. Round Sir James's table that night would meet some of the keenest intellects in Europe, but Pinheiro's letter admitted of no postponement. I bade Sir James a hasty goodbye, little guessing under what strange circumstances I was destined to return to Worley Court. End of Number 5, A Gallop with the Storm, Part 1